Well, we love our Sunday evenings, don't we? This is a time to be together, be in the Word, and I can preach for an hour and a half and you don't care. I, I love that. Turn to Genesis 28. Genesis 28. We'll be there in a few minutes. I want to kind of guide our thoughts toward Genesis 28, which will really take us to chapters 31 and 32. We have in the New Testament a very rich treasure Because in the New Testament, God explains to us in very direct, very easy to understand terms, how it is that he saves people from their sins. And one of the great rich truths that we possess in the New Testament, very easy to understand, is the the understanding of the need for regeneration, the need to be made into a new creation. This isn't a process. It's not something that's brought about by good works. Certainly, it's not brought about by water baptism. It's not brought about even by making a conscious decision to follow Christ. It's solely the work of God. It's something that he does. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 8, he explains the nature of this new birth. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's solely a work of God in his time, in his way, in his fashion. Very familiar to us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, And renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out. We didn't go after. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And because of this amazing gift, the gift of God, whereby the Spirit of God remakes a man, it opens our spiritual eyes. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit from the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so now, by understanding, we are capable of and given a very special gift. And that gift is faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? The grace by which you're saved through faith. All of it is a gift. Now, why was regeneration necessary for you? Why couldn't you just make a conscious decision that the most logical thing to do is to humble yourself to come to saving faith in Christ? Why couldn't you just make an an intellectual choice? Well, let me give you 10 reasons that regeneration is necessary. They will not stroke your ego and they will not make you feel good about yourself, but they are biblical nonetheless. 10 reasons regeneration is necessary. First, you were morally evil. You were morally evil. Genesis 8, 21, the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said, you who are evil, speaking to humanity. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, how can you speak good when you are evil? John 3, 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were what? Were evil. I don't think we can be any clearer here. You were morally evil. The second reason regeneration is necessary, you were spiritually sick. You were spiritually sick. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And of course, Jesus is our great physician who heals our spiritual sickness. It's a third reason regeneration is necessary. You were in spiritual darkness. You were in spiritual darkness. Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And again, we read John three nineteen. the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So fourth reason you needed regeneration, you were slaves to sin. You were slaves to sin. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's everyone. Romans 6, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
In 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul reminds us we were in the snare of the devil. We were caught. We were enslaved. The fifth reason you needed regeneration, your minds were blinded to spiritual truth. Your minds were blinded to spiritual truth. This is the answer to the question, why couldn't we just logically decide to come to faith? Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. I think that's pretty clear. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's a spiritual blindness that Scripture speaks of so frequently. The sixth reason you needed regeneration, you were under sentence of death. You were under sentence of death in any way you can slice this. You were under sentence of death. You were under sentence of physical death. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is not some natural, beautiful cycle of life. Death is a horrible thing. It is the consequence of sin. It is a sentence. You were under spiritual death sentence. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You were spiritually dead. And you were under sentence of eternal death. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that the lost will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Not a death of sleep, not a death of annihilation, but a death of being eternally punished by God with no hope whatsoever. It's the seventh reason you needed regeneration. Your will was sinful. Your will was sinful. You, you couldn't possibly decide to do the right thing. 2 Peter 2.19, you were slaves of corruption. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We don't have the will to come to God. We don't have the will to come to Christ. We don't have the will to see that the cross is good. So an eighth reason you needed regeneration. Your desires were selfish. Not only could you not will yourself to go in the right direction, you wouldn't have wanted to if you could. Your desires were selfish. Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. First Peter 2.11, Peter reminds us that we're to be careful about the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Your desires were selfish. It's the ninth reason you needed regeneration. Your relationships were broken. Your relationships were broken. Your relationship with God was broken. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's hatred toward God. And your relationship with others was broken. James 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If you're outside of Christ... Since your desires are inherently selfish, then of course your relationships are going to be broken. And then the final reason that you needed regeneration, you were disqualified from heaven. You were disqualified from heaven. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. You must be pure in heart. You weren't, so you're disqualified. Hebrews twelve fourteen: strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So it's pretty... Obvious that we needed God's intervention. The need for God's intervention, his monergistic work, which just means the work of one, the one directional work to change your heart. It's very clear from the easy to understand teaching in the New Testament, such rich treasures of knowledge for us. And so we get that and we understand regeneration, or you should at least. The New Testament's very clear. But what about the Old Testament saints? These men and women who served God, were they regenerated? Did they have this benefit as well? Now certainly we understand that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that indwelling is a new covenant phenomenon. It began very clearly at Pentecost. But was there an internal reality of faith for the Old Testament saint? Was there a regeneration, so to speak? Did the, put it this way, did the future sacrifice of Christ on the cross, pay for the sins of those who came before him, paying, as it were, by credit. Is that what happened? And did those who had a humble, repentant faith in God, did they experience a life change? Did they experience an alteration of their character such that at one time they did not desire to serve God, and at another time now they do? 
Did he experience this? Well, the short answer to this question is there was a life-changing internal reality of faith that maybe we could call it regeneration, and it's okay to, but not in the fuller sense of new covenant regeneration, certainly. But there is definitely an internal reality of faith. There's a change of heart. There's a change in direction, a change of will, a change of mind, a repentance. For example, for the Jew, the external sign, the outward sign of following God was circumcision. But that was only a sign. Deuteronomy 10, 16, God called the faithful to circumcise their hearts, going after an internal change. David asked God in Psalm 51 to give him a clean heart. He says, create in me a clean heart. That's an internal change. Jesus called Nathanael in John 1, 47, Quote, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's a heart condition, and that's prior to Pentecost. That's prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 14 calls Noah, Daniel, and Job righteous men. And since we know from the New Testament that there are none righteous, no inherently righteous men, God made a change in them of some sort in Noah and Daniel and Job. So we wouldn't call this the fullest sense of New Testament regeneration because this, what we see in the Old Testament, kind of anticipated really that promised fuller sense. It's not fully realized. We do see in passages such as Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, the glorious promises of the coming new covenant in which God will pour out his spirit on his people. There's a sense of, of generosity and lavishness. But we can say with confidence that in the Old Testament, God initiated a monergistic work, God initiated setting believing men and women into right relationship with himself. Their sins were forgiven. They experienced a true and a real and a vital communion with God and they anticipated eternal life with God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the Old Testament saints believed in eternal life and they looked forward to it. Now this discussion, what it really does is prepare us for a classic example of an Old Testament character who demonstrates the idea of a heart now turned to God, a changed heart. If we can use the word a regenerate heart, truly not in the New Covenant sense, but a regenerate heart nonetheless. A will broken by God, a mind transformed now to think toward God. And that character, one of my favorite in all the Bible, is Jacob. Jacob, in his life, we can't possibly know the exact moment of anyone's faith in Christ But we do get a pretty good idea of what this looks like outwardly in Jacob. And he gives us a great example. And guess who we're going to see vitally involved in giving Jacob his faith? We're going to see, as we have the last few weeks, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And we'll note once again that when God appears in the flesh, we showed in our introductory message to this little series that this must be the second member of the Trinity. This must be the Son of God. Now, I love the story of Jacob the son of Isaac and Rebekah, because it's one of the most comprehensive accounts of any man or woman in all of the Bible. We see his entire life from birth all the way to death. We see everything. I think there's two reasons for this. First of all, he's a key figure in God's redemptive plan in history. Everyone can finish this sentence, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the second reason is we get an example of God's faithfulness throughout a person's lifetime. And so those are, those are great reasons to see and to study his life. But you recall that Jacob left his family. He ran for his life after tricking his father Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn instead of to his slightly older twin brother Esau. You recall that God met Jacob at Bethel. God gave him the vision of the stairway or the ladder to heaven and reaffirmed the Abrahamic covenant to him. He arrived in Abraham's homeland. He met with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother, and began this 20-year period, 20 year period of time there. You remember that he fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He worked seven years to pay off the bride price and then got tricked into marrying her sister, Leah. He worked another seven years to marry Rachel, And God began using Jacob to build the 12 tribes of Israel as both Leah and Rachel began having sons along with two of their servant women at various times when Rachel and Leah couldn't have children. Same as Abraham and Sarah's little scheme with Hagar. After Jacob's 11th son Joseph was born, Jacob was ready to go home and he requested to be released from his obligations to Laban. 
But Laban just told him, he said, look, I've been blessed by God because of you. It's been revealed to me that you're the reason that I'm becoming wealthy. And so he said to Jacob, I'll tell you what, let's make a deal. You hang out here, name your wages, and I will give it to you. Name your price. This was to entice Jacob to stay and to care for Laban's flocks as well. And so in Genesis chapter 30, Jacob names his wages to stay. It's very simple. He says, I'll tell you what, from here on out, give me all the striped and the spotted and the speckled goats and the black lambs. There weren't very many of them. And so Laban said, that's a deal. And so Jacob got to get all the ones out of the flock that were the, existed at the time and all the ones that would be born from then on that were kind of those uh, out of sorts, striped, spotted and speckled animals. Jacob would get them. And in fact, Jacob even said, hey, that way we'll always know that the odd looking livestock are mine and the normal ones are yours. Easy to tell them apart. Now, we're going to pick up the story right there, but Jacob provides us, speaking of regeneration, of a beautiful contrast. We're just going to do a two part contrast. The first part is man's inadequate attempt to relate to God. Man's inadequate attempt to relate to God. And the second part is God's perfect gift of genuine faith. God's perfect gift of genuine faith. So we'll look at man's inadequate attempt to relate to God and then God's perfect gift of genuine faith. The first part of our contrast, man's inadequate attempt to relate to God. Now we're going to backtrack here for just a moment to the time that Jacob basically had nothing but the shirt on his back. He's fleeing from Esau. He's come to, coming to Mesopotamia to his mother's family. He stopped at the place that he would name Bethel, the house of God. And he saw a vision of a stairway to heaven. And the stairway to heaven basically was God telling him, you have the resources of heaven at your disposal. Look how I am acting and working in your life. You have all of heaven at your disposal because of my covenant with your grandfather, Abraham. And so after he saw this vision, the next morning, he made a deal with God. And we see this in Genesis 28. Look with me at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Did you notice? If God will be with me, then the Lord shall be my God. He's making a deal. Now the obvious implication here is that if Jacob is promising to give God 10% of all that he has, and at the moment he has nothing, the, the big ask here is that God would make Jacob wealthy like his father, wealthy like his grandfather before him. And so Jacob is attempting to make a deal with God, that if God meets certain conditions, then Jacob will serve him. Now, I know your New Testament minds, you're, you're getting uncomfortable with this. You should be. This is as if God is so very pleased to have Jacob as one of his own, because Jacob is so wonderful himself, the one whose name means deceiver, trickster, the one who tricked his brother and his father and is now running for his life. I mean, he's essentially living as a criminal on the lamb, saying, God, if you help me, I will give myself to you. Aren't you pleased with that? Now, we fast forward 14 years or so. Jacob has two wives, a bunch of kids, but in essence, he's still a hired hand to his uncle Laban. He's not his own man. Turn to Genesis 31 now. And after making this deal with Laban over the next few years, Jacob's flocks exploded with reproduction while Laban's flocks were more feeble and fewer in number. In fact, as Jacob's flocks increased, he would trade for larger livestock and would increase his own household such that he became very wealthy. Look with me at chapter, just right before chapter 31, Genesis 30, 43 Last verse of chapter 30, thus the man, that's Jacob, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. But there were rumblings in the camp. Chapter 31, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, 
Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So it's time to go. It's time to go. So he is, has a family meeting. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. Notice he doesn't call them to the tent where perhaps his father-in-law or his brothers-in-law can, can overhear. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So, what does it mean that Laban changed his wages? Let's back up on this. The deal that Jacob made with Laban. Hey, I'll take the striped, the spotted, or the mottled, which just means speckled. And Laban said, that sounds good. Next uh, breathing season, all of them that were giving birth were giving birth to the striped and the spotted and the mottled. So Laban said, all right, no, next year it's just the striped. And they're all striped. And okay, next year it's just the spotted. Then they're all spotted. Okay, one-third spotted, one-third striped, and one-third something else. And that's what would happen. And Laban kept trying to manipulate this deal, and God kept making it go Jacob's way. And so this obviously is not going very well. And now in this meeting with his wives, he relates a dream that he received from God. In this dream, it's a little difficult chronologically, but he's going to relate a dream that had happened sometime back. Verse 10 In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats were mated with the, that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God came to me in the dream. There he is, the angel of the Lord, came to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Here's we know, how we know this is the angel of the Lord. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now the command to leave, it should be taken as, as soon as I have given you the increase of the striped and spotted animals. And so here in this recounting of, a, of this vision he had had sometime back, Jacob does credit God with increasing his flock. But let's see how this idea came about and what Jacob had done with it. All God did was show Jacob a vision of the striped and speckled flocks that were growing. That's all he did. And it was right about then that Jacob had requested of Laban to leave. And that's when he maneuvered Laban into offering him a deal. And Jacob was more than ready to act on this vision of God, giving him great wealth by having Laban's flocks continue to give birth to a growing number of striped and speckled and and spotted livestock. And so Jacob would make the deal And by faith, he would sit back and wait on the Lord, right? Wrong. Jacob, though he has some level of faith in God, also believed in God helps those who help themselves. And so he decided to help God along a little bit. Turn back with me to chapter 30, verse 37. He had received this vision from God that God was going to give him great wealth through this deal of the speckled and spotted and striped. Chapter 30, verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. In other words, he turned them into striped sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So what's happening here? Jacob is using a superstitious idea 
that as the flocks looked at the striped sticks, they would give birth then to the striped and the speckled offspring. And he only did this when the strongest of the flocks were breeding, not when the weak ones were. And so the result is, in just a few years, Laban's flock looked like the sad, starving, motley crew of has-beens. And Jacob's massive flock is strong and robust. They're goofy-looking, but they're strong and robust. And no wonder Laban's sons are upset. They're, they're, they're counting their flock, going, man, all we've got is like four nearly dead goats, and that's it. And Jacob has all this wealth. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out how the striped sticks made the flocks bear this sort of young. Misses the whole point. Obviously, the striped sticks didn't make the females give birth to striped or speckled offspring. That's like saying to a woman, you should look at the moon while you're pregnant so that you'll give birth to an astronaut. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Jacob gave credit to God, but he also hedged his bet by trying to make it happen himself as well with an ancient superstitious trick. By the way, this is the way they operated. His wives had essentially done the same thing as well. When each of them gave birth to sons, they gave credit to God each time as you read through Genesis. And yet in the competition between the two sisters to have the most children, they also ate mandrakes because they believed that mandrakes increased fertility. So they gave credit to God, but they were also just, again, having the attitude, God helps those who help themselves. Now, back in Genesis 31... God has increased Jacob's flocks massively and now he's losing favor with Laban and his sons and so it's time to go. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, This is now in present time. Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred and I will be with you. How would his wives feel about leaving their father's household? It's not a very good, not a very good testimony of Laban and his family. Verse 14 Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. And now then, whatever God has said to you, do. How glorious it is when a wife says, Whatever God has said to you, do that. That's the right thing to do. But once again... Jacob feels like he needs to help God out a little bit. Does he have a meeting with Laban and say, look, let me explain the way things are and let's have a, let's have a, come to an understanding here? Nope, he didn't do that. Jacob and Laban were camped a few days apart and Jacob simply packed up and left. And just for good measure, Rachel stole Laban's household gods. He was not a faithful worshiper of Yahweh, probably because of their value in gold or silver. Three days later, Laban found out that Jacob had fled with his daughters and it took seven more days to chase him down, probably fully with the intent of intimidating Jacob into coming back. But the night before confronting Jacob, God visited Laban in a dream. He said, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. When was the last time we saw that phrase? We saw it this morning when, when Laban and Bethuel, his father, were convinced that Eleazar's story was of God and what had happened was of God and they said we cannot say anything to you either good or bad. In other words, don't have an opinion on the matter. God isn't interested in your opinion. And so this is a protection to Jacob. Laban did overtake Jacob. There were some tense words, no doubt about that. But ultimately Laban kissed his daughters and kissed his grandchildren and blessed them and went back home. Great, crisis passed, right? Nope, not at all. Jacob goes from the frying pan into the fire. We're going to return to that in just a moment. You see a pattern in this family at all? They're all hucksters and tricksters. Every one of them. They're all trying to get ahead of each other through deception, through trickery. Jacob tricked his father and brother out of the birthright and blessed and the blessing of the eldest son of the family. It's like, gotcha, dad and brother. And then Laban tricked Jacob into marrying the wrong daughter. Gotcha, surprise new son-in-law. Then Jacob tricked Laban supposedly by peeling sticks to expose the white wood, which is a double gotcha because Laban means white. That's gotcha, gotcha, father-in-law. Then Jacob took his whole family without Laban knowing. Gotcha, father-in-law, again. And Rachel stole wealth from her father. Gotcha, daddy, one last little zinger on our way out. 
What a bunch of shysters and con artists. This is not a family that does April Fool's well. I mean, I would be scared on that day. And yet, Jacob is still under the blessing of God. Because of his grandfather, Abraham, God had blessed him, and yet Jacob continued trying to rely on his own devices, his own power, his own will. He was trying to relate to God on his own terms, and it was inadequate. It didn't work. It wasn't right. Trying to relate to God on your own terms, making deals with God, helping him out, so to speak, with your good works, this is offensive to God when it comes to our salvation. Isaiah 64, 6 says that your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 3, 12 says all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, trying to make a deal with God, this is sort of an interesting proposition because it assumes that somehow God is captivated by you. And that is one of the great failings of American evangelicalism today is it presents the gospel as somehow God begging you to make his life better by coming to him. It's the other way around. We ought to be begging God for life and for newness of our hearts. So Jacob here illustrates the futility of trying to relate to God on somewhat equal terms, making deals with God. He's demonstrated man's inadequate attempt to relate to God. Now, when we left Jacob, he had gone from the frying pan into the fire because now he had a new problem. He was going back home and there was somebody there that 20 years earlier had not been happy with him. That is his brother Esau. The last he heard concerning his brother Esau, Esau was intent on murdering Jacob. And now we're going to see the other side of this contrast. In contrast to man's inadequate attempt to relate to God, we see God's perfect gift of genuine faith. God's perfect gift of genuine faith. Go with me to Genesis 32, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 32, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Why do the angels appear to Jacob here? This is not the angel of the Lord. These are regular old run-of-the-mill angels, I guess you could call them. But you remember at Bethel, the stairway to heaven God showed Jacob that heaven itself was at his disposal as one who would be blessed by God because of God's graciousness, God's kindness, God's covenant with Abraham, not because of anything that Jacob brings to the table personally. And so Jacob names the place Mahanaim, two camps, that there is the camp of the humans and the camp of the angels that accompany them. This isn't really a miracle. This is just God showing Jacob what is real, showing the the curtain pulled back on the spiritual reality of the angels who were accompanying his entourage. Verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Sire, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob. You catch this right now? My lord Esau, your servant Jacob. He's already going in with humility now. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Insert gulp right there. Verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking if, Jason come, if, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then that camp that is left will escape. And so Jacob said, he begins to pray at this point. Now, I want you to notice something. God is already bringing him to a crisis point. He's bringing him to a dependence where he cannot deal with this on his own. He has fear and God is beginning to break down this dependence on self. Now he still does this desperation attempt to, we're going to divide the camps and if Esau attacks one and decimates it, then I still have the other. Logically, what's going to happen then? Esau just goes to the other one, right? So it's still Jacob's attempt. And so he prays. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. 
For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And in this prayer, Jacob does four things. First of all, he addresses God properly. He addresses God as the God of sovereignty, the God of eternity, the God of consistency, the God of my father, Abraham and Isaac. And by the way, future generations would call him the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So he addresses God properly. He also quotes God's word back to him. That's always a good idea. If you pray scripture, you know you're in the right. You know that you are praying properly. He quotes God's words back to him. This is a motivation to faith for Jacob. The third thing he does is he acknowledges his complete dependence on God in verse 10. And finally, he makes a direct request. It's a detailed request. And he bases it upon the previously revealed will of God. So he addresses God properly. He quotes God's word back to him. He acknowledges his dependence on God. And he makes a direct, detailed request. Now we're getting somewhere spiritually. Now we're seeing Jacob as he ought to be. Jacob acknowledges, verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. This is a far cry from, if you will bless me, I will make you my God. We're in a different place now, aren't we? Now he says, I'm not worthy. But he still tries to use his own shrewdness to save his own skin. In verses 13 through 23, he hatches a plan to send vast quantities of animals and gifts to Esau. And they were going to arrive in shifts. More and more and more gifts for Esau. Verse 20, he's giving instruction to his servants. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. The scripture doesn't say this was a good thing to do. It doesn't say it was a bad thing. It doesn't pass judgment on it. We do understand from Proverbs 18, verse 16, though, that a man's gift makes room for him. And so we understand that, brings him before the great. But in Jacob's case, once again, he's hedging his bet. He's doing his part to help out God. He's not fully entrusted to God yet. He still has an escape plan. There are the two camps, and he can escape with the one that lives, and he's sending these gifts ahead. So he's still hedging his bets. And now he sends all of his family and his possessions, and he sends them ahead. And finally, we come to the pivot point. We come to the moment of crisis. We come to the spiritual moment where all other avenues of supposedly relating to God and gaining his favor, all other avenues, all other options have evaporated. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. He was left alone. You know what this feels like. You know what it feels like to feel helpless like a sheep led to slaughter, facing something you don't think you can face. Anything that Jacob could have used for comfort, his family, his wealth, his servants, none of those things are with him. He's stripped down to his faith in God alone. And his intention is to spend the night alone before facing this difficulty And now he faces God. He faces God in the flesh, the angel of the Lord coming to him in the night. And the angel of the Lord did something surprising. He attacked Jacob. We don't expect a visit from God to be an attack. Oh, look, it's God. And they're down on the ground. Verse 24. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. We know this is God because verse 30 says he has seen God face to face. I have three questions though. First of all, why did the angel of the Lord come wrestle with Jacob? Second question, why did the angel of the Lord not beat Jacob wrestling? And the third question, why did the angel of the Lord blow out Jacob's hip joint? It's almost like cheating, it feels like. So first question, why did the angel of the Lord come wrestle Jacob? 
Why did he do this? Well, first of all, geographically, Jacob is at the border of Canaan. He's, he's at the, the ford of the Jabbok River, which feeds into the Jordan River. And he's literally about to have the promise of God fulfilled. He's about to enter into the land that has been promised to him. When he's facing this incredible, incredible obstacle the next day, his brother, as far as he knows, still furious with him with an army of 400 men. And so he is going to spend this night alone. And it would be a sleepless night. I suppose all of us at one time or another have spent a sleepless night knowing what's going to happen the next day. We understand that. Jacob isn't going to sleep. So God comes to visit with him. Now, the idea here is not of mortal combat. In fact, the word wrestle means to get each other dusty. It's the idea of what a father does with his kids on the living room floor. It's, it's a friendly idea, and, and it's manly. There's no doubt about that. They're going after it. But it's a, a manly sort of a way to be a comfort to Jacob. Jacob's not going to sleep. Instead, he wrestles with God. So second question, though, why did the angel of the Lord not beat Jacob wrestling? There are some commentators who say this can't be God because God would have won. And that makes sense. I think most angels would have won anyway. But this is just like a father who lets his little boys think that they beat him wrestling. The angel of the Lord gives Jacob false confidence. He gives him the idea that maybe in his own power, Jacob can relate to God somehow as as equals. And look what God is doing. Look at the picture that he's giving He's wrestling Jacob, yet he's allowing Jacob to prevail, allowing Jacob to believe that he could relate to God on his own terms, that maybe he could prevail. And, and the lesson becomes very clear. It's, it's almost as if he's saying, that's right, Jacob, relate to me in your own power. That's right, Jacob, trick your father and brother because I really needed your help. That's right, Jacob, those sticks you put next to the sheep, that really made all the difference. Thanks for the assist. That's right, Jacob, I'm going to bless you because you promised me 10% of everything you would gain and boy, I really need some sheep and goats. Thank you for that. And that's right, Jacob, you taking off and leaving Laban, Laban in the dust, that's what would keep you safe. So why did the angel of the Lord then blow out Jacob's hip joint? Because it was time for Jacob to finally surrender. He was to surrender his heart and his will to God. He was under the mistaken impression that he could wrestle God and prevail. But then God showed who was truly sovereign. The hip joint is the most difficult joint in the body to dislocate. It would have been an incredibly painful injury. And you see the pattern here? Jacob wrestles with God. Jacob fights back. God then wounds Jacob. I am sovereign. All the leeway that I have given to you, all the ways that you think you have related to me in your own power, all the ways that you even thought right now that you pinned me down, it's been my decision, not yours. And now it's time to trust me because this is a momentous day. And what day is this? Verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, the name, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The angel of the Lord wrestled Jacob until daybreak. God literally kept Jacob focused on God. Until the night had passed, until the dark stretch of this trial had passed by him. And Jacob, now that he's wounded, he's hurting, he's unable to wrestle God, he can only do one thing, I won't let you go until you bless me. And you have this picture of Jacob just hanging on. Now Jacob is where he needs to be, in complete dependence upon God, hanging on to the Lord. And the angel of the Lord asks, what is your name? Now obviously the angel of the Lord knew his name. What he's asking is, what is your nature? deceiver Jacob and now Jacob gets his blessing he gets a new name Israel striver with God or God strives both have the same significance he says for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed how has Jacob prevailed he didn't beat the angel of the Lord he prevailed because now he's dependent upon God Now he knows to hang on to God by faith. This is the same victory that we have in Christ. We are said to have prevailed with God because of Christ. 
And Jacob now asks a reasonable question. Verse 29, Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob is left with this incomplete revelation. Why? Because it's not time yet to reveal the name of the angel of the Lord. Not until Luke chapter 1. Listen to verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name. Here's the answer to Jacob's question, Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father Jacob, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jacob didn't learn his name yet, but unbeknownst to him, he had just met his savior, he had just met his future king. Verse 30. So Jacob named, called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. What kind of man was Jacob now? He was a broken man. He was broken. And how do we know this? Hosea 12 verse 4 tells us more. It tells us that while Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, Quote, he wept and sought his favor. That as he wrestled with God, Jacob is, is weeping. He's at the bottom of himself. He's at the end of his own power. He no longer can relate to God on his own terms. And he's just hanging on to him and just weeping and asking, please bless me, please bless me, please bless me. Now he's broken. What was Jacob's problem? At this moment, Jacob's problem was that Esau might try to kill him. So what's the possible solution to this if things should go badly? Well, very simple. Jacob could run away. So what does God do? God crippled Jacob, and now he can't run. He can't run. He must face Esau, and he must trust God. And we get this monumental verse in verse 31. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. The sun is rising on Jacob's face. As he begins to limp toward his greatest fear. He cannot run away from it. He can only limp toward it. He's now forced to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Listen. Better to limp with complete trust in God. Than to walk upright with any trust in self. So much better. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. What a transformation. Jacob, the deceiver, tricking his way into an inheritance that God would have given him anyway, now becoming the broken, limping man, weeping and holding desperately onto his Lord and his Savior. This is God's perfect gift of genuine faith. The brokenness of a heart turned to God. You cannot come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ unless God breaks you, unless the Spirit of God pierces you. Why is that? Well, because if you don't know Christ and haven't bent your knee to submit to Him and to ask forgiveness of your sins, then you are morally evil, you are spiritually sick, you're in spiritual darkness, you're a slave to sin, your mind is blinded to spiritual truth, you're under sentence of death, your will is sinful, your desires are selfish, your relationships are broken, and you're disqualified from heaven there's only one recourse and that is to surrender to surrender to be broken to have god break you and make you dependent upon him and him alone for salvation from sin and then when he breaks you then you can be in christ like second corinthians five seventeen. if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come I told you that one of the reasons I love the life of Jacob is because we see him from birth to death. And we see this transformation. We see how different he is. Many years later, when Jacob was brought 
to the court of Pharaoh by his son Joseph, who's now the prime minister of Egypt. Pharaoh was a young man about Joseph's age. His name was Sesostris III, and he was, he was blessed by Jacob. Jacob pronounced a blessing on him, and this young Pharaoh was curious. What does a young man ask a really, really old man? Uh, hate to ask, but how old are you? Genesis 47, Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He's humble. He says, I'm not as, not as great like my father Isaac. I'm certainly not like my grandfather Abraham. I'm just a humble man who is not dependent on self any longer. God was patient with Jacob. This may come as a surprise to you, but the best scholarship and calculations from Scripture tell us that Jacob was about 77 years old when he left Isaac and Rebekah to go to his uncle Laban, and he was about 97 on this trip home. Jacob wasted a century trusting in himself. A hundred years relying on his own power and strength, but God graciously broke him near the end of his life and then he lived by faith. That is a beautiful story. But if you're hearing this, if you're here or you're hearing this electronically online and you're still trying to make deals with God, he makes no deals with men. There's only one deal that may be made and that is the one that he gave and that is Accept my son, Jesus Christ, as your savior, as your only way. Receive him. Ask for forgiveness of sins. Beg for mercy, and I will give it. Jesus said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It must come through Christ. You must be broken. You must take up your cross. You must die with Christ. You must be crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you so that the life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You must live the life of the angel of the Lord who we know gloriously as the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you live, as the Apostle Paul tells us, by faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this glorious example of a transformed life. Thank you for Jacob, who is our brother in the Lord. We will meet him someday, and I doubt he'll have the limp, but I suspect he'll have the memory of it, and we would love to hear the story from his lips. And yet we have heard the story from your lips, the very word of God that tells us, Lord, that we too ought to walk with a limp. We ought to walk in brokenness, to remember that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power will be made manifest in our weakness, that we come to you with nothing and you give us everything. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you for the payment for our sins, the payment that was due to you and to your your wrath, which rightly should have been poured on us. But we will praise you for age after age and eon after eon for being your children because of adoption and because of the cross. We look forward to meeting Jacob, Lord, our brother who learned very much the hard way. May we not be that way. May we learn, Lord, may we be humble. May we be submissive. May we learn now to walk with the limp, to walk in other dependence on you, to walk by faith. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.